0: Well good afternoon, my name is Brian Parks and I serve as the senior pastor here at Covenant Hope Church. I'm glad to be out of quarantine and to be able to come and preach to you this day. We are beginning a summer sermon series in the book of Psalms and specifically we're beginning with Psalm 120. Now. Psalms 120 through 134 are 15 Psalms that have at the top of each one of them these big block lettered headings or a heading which reads, a song of ascents, a song of ascents. Now, an ascent is a movement from a lower elevation up to a higher one. And so when you read or you hear about mountain climbers, for example, on Mount Everest, you might have heard someone say, well, the climbers are getting ready to make their final ascent to the peak. And when we talk about Jesus taking his place at the right hand of God, we speak about his ascension. So it's likely that these psalms were collected and named the Songs of Ascents because they were sung by Israelites as they journeyed up to Jerusalem from their homes either in distant parts of the country or maybe even from countries farther away where they lived in exile. At least three times a year, God's law commanded that Israelites were to travel up to Jerusalem for a Jewish feast. And they traveled up to Jerusalem because, of course, Jerusalem was on a mountain. You might remember that when Jesus was a boy, He got left behind in Jerusalem when His parents were returning home from the Passover feast there. And so in Luke, 20, Luke 2, 41 and 42, it says, now His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And the rest of the story goes on and tells about how his parents thought that Jesus was with the family traveling group as they made their way away down from Jerusalem. But he wasn't, of course. He was back up in Jerusalem at the temple. So that story is describing where the Israelites were ascending to Jerusalem and then descending after the feast. So the ascent that these Psalms were collected together for was a sort of a songbook for travelers. A songbook for travelers in their journey from distant lands up the mountain and into Jerusalem, which was God's chosen dwelling place. When our girls were young and we lived in the United States, we would sometimes go on road trips to see family or maybe to go on a vacation in a faraway place. And we'd all pile into one car and drive for hours and hours and hours. And one of the ways that we would pass the time together was we would play music in the car and we would sing together. Now imagine groups of Israelites, some traveling from faraway distant lands where they have been living. They're traveling in groups for safety And camaraderie and they sing together as they walk along or as they ride on animals like donkeys and what would they sing about well they'd sing about the faithfulness of God to his people they'd sing about Jerusalem and all that it represented as the special dwelling place of God they'd sing about how they were putting their ultimate hopes in the Lord and not on any thing or anyone in the world. So if singing was how ancient Israelites stayed focused on the Lord as they traveled to and from these feasts, it's no wonder that the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. Singing truths to remind ourselves and teach one another is one reason that Christians sing when they gather. Now these 15 psalms were like a soundtrack, a soundtrack for the journey to Jerusalem, a soundtrack that they sang together as they went. And there's actually a progression in the themes of these psalms. You'll see that as we go along in the coming weeks. But the collection starts here in Psalm 120 with a song about life back home. We know that because of what the psalmist says toward the end of his song, and we'll come to that later. But take it from me that he's singing about life in some distant land surrounded by lying, hostile unbelievers. This psalm is only seven verses and Amy read it to us so well, but I'm going to read it one more time because it's only seven verses and it will help you remember it. Follow along with me in your Bibles, Psalm 120 or you can find it in your bulletin as well. A Song of Ascents. In my distress, I called to the Lord and He answered me, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Let me take us to the throne of God and ask Him to give us wisdom as we study His Word today. Heavenly Father, we pray that Your Word would cut through to our hearts, that it would both comfort and convict and do all that You intend for it to do. In Christ's name, Amen. What I want you to walk away committed to believing and doing based on this Psalm today is to trust in God's deliverance from the attacks of liars. Trust in God's deliverance from the attacks of liars. Imagine a group of Israelite travelers making their way to Jerusalem and they begin by singing about what it's like to try and stay faithful to the Lord when you're surrounded by liars and hostile people. People who don't believe in God. People who think they can take advantage of others by constantly lying. People who maybe won't even literally fight you, but with their lies and their deceits, they're actually waging war. The first act of trusting God for deliverance from the attacks of liars is to pray for deliverance from God. Pray for deliverance from God. That's the first point that we see illustrated in verses 1 and 2. The Israelite who wrote this psalm sums up exactly what he did when his distress began and how it ended. In my distress, I called to the Lord and He answered me. It's simple. It's straightforward. This is how I responded to my distress. I prayed and God answered. That's the way it works for people of God. There's nothing like trouble and distress as a natural means of stirring us up to prayer. In verse 2, the psalmist then goes on to recount a summary of his prayer and what caused his distress. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips from a deceitful tongue. The distress he had experienced was a personal attack from someone who was lying to him or maybe someone who was lying about him. If you live long enough as a Christian in the world, you will experience being attacked with lies. Some of you may know what this is like from all the way back in grade school. Maybe there were people that you considered friends. And then the lies about you started to circulate. Those of you who are youth and university students, you've either seen it happen to others around you or maybe it's happened to you directly. And maybe you lost friends over it. That's often where some of our first experiences with the destructive power of lies comes early in our lives. But that's minor compared to what you might experience in the workplace or maybe even, God forbid, in a family. Or even worse, perhaps, sadly, in a church. A coworker may be spreading lies about you so that they can get ahead. Or a supervisor or a manager might start whispering falsehoods to others so that they can terminate you based on lies or maybe write up a bad report about you. If any of these things has happened to you, you know what real distress feels like. And how do you respond? Well, there's at least two temptations for us as God's people when we find ourselves on the receiving end of lies meant to harm us. First of all, you might be tempted to compromise. You may know the saying, if you can't beat them, join them. That describes compromise. You may think to yourself, hey look, if they're getting ahead lying about me, maybe I should begin lying about other people around me so that I can get ahead. The world is always trying to convince us to compromise by doing what they do. That's why Paul repeatedly urged the Christians that he wrote letters to in the New Testament to put off the old self and put on the new self. You see, those New Testament Christians had been unbelievers. They had lived in communities and societies where they lied to one another regularly, but now they were Christians. They had come to Christ. They were new creations in Him. And Paul was urging them, put off what you did before and put on what Christ would do. A body doesn't lie to itself. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Paul knew that the temptation that new Christians would experience was to compromise and to live like the unbelievers around them. Another temptation that we can face when there are lies being told about us is to take revenge. Revenge would feel so good and right, we think, to ourselves. And brothers and sisters, I have thought this sadly to myself. But the Lord says vengeance is His. He will repay. That's not up to us. On the contrary, like our psalmist here, if we're guided by the Holy Spirit, when we're attacked by the lies of others, our response will be to pray. We won't compromise or plot revenge or even worry or fret. We will go to our Father in heaven and ask Him to deliver us because He can and because He's a deliverer. Is prayer your response to being attacked and lied about? Are the effects of someone's deceitful comments about you causing you distress even now? Your heavenly Father knows all about it. Turn to Him. Call out to Him. He's listening and He will deliver you. Just like He did for this psalmist. One thing that guards us from sinning in response when we're sinned against is to consider the cost of sin. And that's where the psalmist's thoughts turn to in verses 3 and 4. We, too, should regularly remember the penalty for sin. That's the second point this afternoon. Remember the penalty for sin. And we see that in verses 3 and 4. The psalmist asks the question directly, what shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? (laughs) It's as if he's speaking to the tongues of those who are lying about him. He's personifying even their tongues. Some Bible interpreters think that The next verse, verse 4, might actually describe what lying lips and a deceitful tongue are like. Verse 4 says, of course, a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. But a majority of interpreters see this as an answer to the psalmist's own question, and I agree with them. The penalty and the punishment that lying rightly deserves is a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. That's what it deserves. Throughout the Old Testament, God's judgment on his enemies is oftentimes described with battle metaphors. It's as if God were a warrior wielding weapons like a bow and arrow or a sword. And these descriptions of God defeating his enemies in battle can be, they can be rather shocking, but they're not inappropriate. Sin is an attack on God's holiness and His goodness, and it deserves judgment. Every lie deserves judgment. Lying is one of the first sins against God that we see in the Bible. When the serpent told Eve in the garden, you will not surely die, he was directly contradicting what the Lord had told Adam and Eve would happen. And at that moment, he cemented his identity as the father of lies. Jesus says to the Jews attacking him in John 8 verse 44, "'You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies.'" God, on the other hand, when He speaks, He also speaks out of His character, but He only speaks truth. He always tells the truth. God is truth. He never lies. And so for all people made in God's image, made to reflect His character, He commanded that they always tell the truth and never lie. The ninth commandment that God gave His people Israel was, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. God was teaching His people that the opposite of loving your neighbor is lying to your neighbor. There's no such thing as a little white lie. Proverbs 12, verse 22, lying lips lips. Are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are His delight. In his little book, Keeping the Ten Commandments, J.I. Packer reminds us, lying insults not only your neighbor whom you may manage to fool, but also God whom you can never fool. Any lie is an insult to God and like any sin it deserves judgment. Here's a verse that you've heard me quote oftentimes because it convicts me so much. This probably won't be the last time you'll hear it. Matthew 12, it's actually verses 36 and 37. Jesus said, but I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. sobering. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus came into the world to save liars like us. We've all told lies. Whether they were told to harm someone else, or whether they were told in pride to make ourselves look better or to hide who we really are, Jesus went willingly, even joyfully, to the cross and endured the sharp arrows and the glowing coals of the Father when He was crucified. He took the punishment that our sin deserved so that we would no longer be His enemies, but instead become His sons and daughters with the privilege to call out to Him for deliverance. Deliverance from our sin first and foremost and then also deliverance from those who would attack us. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian and you're exploring Christianity, this is an important truth and in it contains both bad news and good news for you. Have you ever lied? Be honest. Your sin deserves the judgment described in verse 4. Ours did too. Oh, but we have a gracious and merciful Savior in Christ. He took the punishment that you deserved on the cross and rose again in victory. Will you receive the forgiveness and amnesty that He offers? Renounce your sin and trust in Christ today. Remembering the penalty that comes to sinners like liars both causes us to treasure the forgiveness that we've received and, like the psalmist, to trust in the vengeance of God for those who attack us with lies and falsehoods. Remember the penalty for sin. But remembering the judgment that our attackers will receive if they do not turn to Christ doesn't give us the ultimate relief and peace that we long for now. As long as we live in this world before Jesus returns, we must lament the hostility of the world. And that's the third point this afternoon, lament the hostility of the world. We see that in verses 5, 6, and 7. That's what our psalmist does as he makes his way to Jerusalem. Woe is me, he says. He's lamenting. Because he lives in a land of liars, that's why. He's among sinners bent on taking advantage of him. He says he sojourns in Meshach and he too long has dwelt among the tents of Kedar. Both places, Meshach and Kedar, are far away from one another, actually. Meshach was in the north by the Black Sea. And whenever it's mentioned in the Bible, it refers to a warlike and violent people who don't honor God with their lives. Kedar, of course, is here in Arabia, right close to where we live. And the people there are similarly described as godless and hostile in the Bible. It's unlikely that the psalmist lived in both of those places, all the way up by the Black Sea and all the way down on the Arabian Peninsula, so we can assume that he's simply using those places and those people groups to describe what his home is like, wherever that is. It's dangerous. It's threatening. And that kind of environment makes you weary and it makes you tired. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace," he laments in verse 6. You know, lies are like little declarations of war. And when lies grow up, they turn into violence. The psalmist's lament is laced with frustration and exhaustion. When he then says in verse 7, I am for peace, actually the translation reads, I am peace. But when I speak, they are for war. It's good and right for us to lament the world's hostility, to not always be chipper and positive about what we're going through. That's not reality for us, is it, oftentimes? Sadness for the sin all around us and the tax that we might regularly experience protect us from beginning to believe the lie that the world is constantly getting better and that peace and love and world harmony are just around the corner if we just work hard enough. That's a lie. Of course, we do pray for Peace. We want governments and laws to promote peace. And by God's common grace, it oftentimes happens in places here and there around the world. But we're not naive. And we know that as long as sin reigns in the world, there will never be peace everywhere. But even as we lament the world's hostility, we should especially work within the church for the peace of Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit at work within us. That's the place where we can have real hope. Hope based on what God tells us is possible because He can accomplish it in our midst and through us. We're the church. We're God's people. God has made peace between us and with Him through Christ's shed blood. The church is God's designed refuge from the hostility of the world. One of our promises to one another that's written into our church covenant that we recount to one another out loud when we take the Lord's Supper is that we will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's a promise that we're making. And it's not a promise that's impossible because God is at work within us. And if we know peace with God, we can have peace with one another. The Israelite pilgrims who would sing this psalm as they trekked to Jerusalem were lamenting the world's hostility in the places where they lived. But lamenting evil goes hand in hand with eventually longing for the good. Lamenting leads to longing. And that's what those pilgrims would be thinking about as they sang this song, because each step closer to Jerusalem would make their longing for God's peace all the greater. That's what Jerusalem would represent to them. The place where God dwelled and the capital of the nation where it was they were intended to live at peace both with God and at peace with one another. That's what God intended. Of course, that was never true in Israel, at least not true for very long at all. Because of the sin in people's hearts, Jesus even lamented that Jerusalem was the city that killed the prophets. (laughs) We should lament the hostility of the world around us. It's good and right to do that, and we should let it give way to longing for the peace of the heavenly Jerusalem. Just like those pilgrims would take step after step after step on their journey to get closer and closer to Jerusalem, each day that passes for us, we're another day closer to heaven, brothers and sisters. I just turned 57 last week, thanks to many of you who gave me birthday greetings. One friend wrote to me and said, well, there goes another year that slipped by. And I wrote back to him and I said, look, I'm one year closer to heaven, brother. And that's good news, living in a world of lies and hatred. One year closer. We may live in hostile places that are like what it was like to live in Meshach. Among a lying and violent people who lived, for example, in Kedar." Dubai can be like that, can't it? But believing the gospel of Jesus Christ and living with Him as our Lord guarantees that we'll one day wake up to find ourselves in the heavenly Jerusalem. Revelation 21 says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Can we add, neither will there be lying, or deception, or hatred, or violence? We can. That's where we're going, saints. That's where we're going. In the meantime, we wait patiently, like this psalmist. And when we're attacked by liars all around, we can pray with faith to the God who will deliver us. We can remember the penalty for sin and The forgiveness that we've received for ours and the vengeance and repayment that will be given to those who don't repent and believe in Christ. And we can lament the world's hostility knowing that our laments will one day be longings fulfilled in the presence of the Lord of truth and the Lord of peace. Let's pray to Him. Heavenly Father, we praise You that You speak only truth to us. We praise You that Your Word tells us that our sins are washed away, are forgiven because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we praise You that Your Word is true when it promises us that we will one day complete the journey and arrive in that heavenly Jerusalem full of peace and truth, O Lord, will you help us live in light of that today, trusting in you when we're attacked, remembering the penalty for sin, lamenting the world's hostility and longing to be with you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.